0: the football mental health alliance podcast a mental health podcast for grassroots football
1: our aim to boldly delve into the intersection of mental health and football we feature notable experts and ex-pros who are not afraid to share their wisdom and personal journeys with mental health
2: good evening everyone thank you all for attending this we really 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 appreciate it the uh, sorry i'm just admitting everyone there's people coming into the lobby now thank you so much for your interest in this webinar Uh, myself and martin really really honored and proud that so many people have 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 shown interest in this and, and got involved with what we're trying to do here so thank you so much we understand you know how important everyone's time is so thanks again so much. We are so, so happy to have everyone here. There is a chat facility going on. So if you've anything you'd like to any questions you'd like to ask, anything you'd like to comment on, Martin will, you know, can answer can answer the chat questions at the end. Um sorry if, if I feel distracted, but I'm just trying to admit all the people that are coming into this. There's quite a few now at the minute. So um yeah, so thank you so much, really appreciate it. Um you know what what we're trying to do is is raise the awareness of, of mental health in football and use football to open discussions around mental health um for us tonight to have martin speaking we're, we're so proud to have a uh, one of the leading uk's leading you know experts on mental health the lived mental health experience martin's story is it's powerful it's poignant and, and and it will make us all think about maybe what we can do moving forward with with our teams, our staff, our colleagues, our friends, our family. So yeah, I will hand over to Martin. I will continue to let people into the to the meeting as they're, they're coming in in droves now. Um, so again, thank you so much for attending. And uh, over to you, Martin.
0: Thank you, Dan. And hopefully you can see my slides, which is always a good start. So I hope you can see that slide in front of you. Uh, first of all, thank you, Dan, for inviting me along today. Uh, I suppose I want to start off a little bit about I suppose a warning message right at the very front of this presentation. So I've got to be talking for about forty-five minutes, but I'm going to talk about suicidal ideation and my own personal mental health journey. So if there's anybody on the call who finds that difficult, then please, please, you know, don't you need to put your cameras on. You know, if you want to take that time away, then that is absolutely fine, because I'm also going to be showing a video as well, which touches on uh, that particular subject. So my name is Martin Roberts, I'm a founder of Keeping Mind Limited, but I'm also actually the mental health lead within uh, Lloyds Banking Group. And I'm going to be talking for the next four to five minutes around my own personal journey, but it's probably more than that. And for me, it's not about my journey, it's more about what I put in place to get me through the other side. And hopefully by the end of this evening, you'll be able to take away maybe some of those hints, tips, techniques that maybe help support yourself, people within your club, or even friends and family. But it's got to be uncomfortable, but I'm also a great believer that to become comfortable, we have to first become uncomfortable. And it may be uncomfortable this next forty-five minutes or so, but hopefully by the end of tonight, if it gives people that permission to do the most two important things anybody can ever do, and that's two steps, three words, I need help, then hopefully then we've served a purpose this evening. The greatest glory in living lies not in never falling, but rising every time we fall. And that's a famous quote by the famous man, uh, Nelson Mandela. And I fell many, many years ago. And we may have people on this call tonight who have fallen, not literally, but hypothetical fallen with their own mental health, their physical health, or even those their emotional well-being. But I'm a great believer that sometimes we don't realise the amount of resilience that we have or the amount of resilience that we can learn from the, those challenging periods. And the last two and two and what bit years have been challenging on a number of many different fronts. And I'm a great believer that now we don't live in this perfect world that we probably thought we lived in pre-pandemic. And I'll touch around some of that perfectionism. and also touch around how perfectionism can actually be inhibiting to our uh, personal lives or even our professional lives. And that could be in our careers, but it's all called that perfectionism. It can be on the football pitch. It can be within clubs. It can be within societies. that we always strive for, to, be, to be that perfect individual. So a bit about me. So I'm born in Halifax, uh, West Yorkshire. Uh, the picture there on the top left-hand corner in the uh, shorts is me, which is a horrendous picture. Married, two children, got a 27 year old and a 17 year old. And football's been part and parcel of our life for many, many, many years. I never went to university. I mean, probably didn't. I wasn't academically minded, I suppose, to go to university. Me, I was brought up in a working class family. Football, you know, second school. That was for me. That was my life to a certain extent at a young age. And then I went to into insured banking. And I suppose 1989 when I was making those career choices. I think it was always said insurance or banking were the right places to go. So I worked, worked at Halifax, then Lawyers Banking Group, and I've been there 30 odd years. In the last five years, I've been doing the mental health lead role. And for me, that is the most important best job I've I've ever had. And I'll explain how that all came about uh, in a few moments. And now my role is not just within as a mental health leader in LBG, but I now go out to do talks to schools, organizations, just like we're doing tonight. And I show my vulnerability and I show, I suppose, a bit of authenticity that I have personal lived experience and I've not got that from a textbook or from reading loads of books. I've been there. I've been at the very bottom of that ladder. And why? Because i put on many, many masks of pretense. I, I hid away from, I suppose, what was happening in, in my life. And I'll show in a few moments to how that really was detrimental to my personal life, absolutely, but also my professional life as well. And that picture, then top uh, right hand corner, that's a picture of me which I didn't know was taken at time, and that was at Hillsborough, uh, which obviously I'll share that story in a few moments, and how that event and a number of other events then came to, well, came crashing down around me uh, one morning in the summer of 2017. You, you might think why on earth is there a pair of brown shoes on that side in front of you? And by chance, I've actually got those same shoes here today, and whenever I do a talk or presentation. I wear these same shoes, and I'm going to talk about my own personal story, where it began. And I also I start from a position that we have all got a story to tell. I don't care who we are; we all have a story to tell. And I'm not here to give you my sub story because we all go through storms in our lives, and we're all going through a lot of storms right now. And I'm going to share around my own personal story, but. We might have people on this call tonight who've gone through some of their own events. It can be things like I don't know, losing a pet or stress at work. Whatever it may be, it's your story. But it's our emotional response to how we handle that reaction, how we handle that situation, how we may want to say, you know, I need a bit of help. But for whatever reason, there's always something that's stopping us in asking for that help. So I'm going to talk about my personal journey. So we've got to talk a few more about that suicide ideation. And like I said before, ignore you know the person that's talking in front of you today. For me, it's the most important thing is the messages. That's what I want to get across. So I mentioned before about how comfortable we have in those uh, mental health conversations. You know, people don't want to get involved. People don't want to open Pandora's box. It's not my problem to sort out. And I was that person back in 2017. I didn't want to talk about mental health. I didn't want to talk it with my friends, my family. Or people in the workplace but what would you do would you walk towards or would you walk away from somebody and like i said before i've admitted i've walked away from people pre-2017 because of the stigma the shame i didn't want to get involved in people's problems but we have to realize that we cannot keep walking away from this problem we have to walk towards we have to somehow create an environment be it in the workplace in clubs or societies that people feel safe to say I need some help, I need some guidance. And that's just not the people playing on the football page. That could be the managers, it could be people in a clubhouse. Mental health or poor mental health don't discriminate against individuals. It can impact anyone at any certain time. And like I said before, we have to sometimes become uncomfortable to absolutely then become comfortable when we're talking about something so distressing as that can be. But would you know what science will count for if someone in your club is struggling with poor mental health? Is it physical science is it sometimes the words they use or the actions that they sometimes portray and i was that person i didn't know the science to account for i didn't know what people would be impacted by poor mental health but what i've learned from my own journey is we have to go on that journey but most importantly is what can we put in place to help and support individuals who are struggling with their poor mental health my mental health journey i know the day the time the place that my poor mental health started impacting me and as you can see in the picture there that was the 15th of April 1989 at six minutes past three and I'm going to show a news in a few moments too I suppose to show the gravity of what happened on that day and we've probably got well we have got people on this call who maybe have been close to that situation may have had people there or even also was just aware of that event on that day. And then go to talk around the day as I experienced it as an 18 year old person and the reason why I show this video and talk about it is I have to somehow bring people to that event in that time so they realise the significance of what happened on that day but then more importantly I'll share my journey around what challenges I faced with but then what I had to put in place to overcome some of these personal battles so I'm going to show the video now fingers crossed this will play okay.
3: We must go now to Hillsborough, what looks anyway to be a major incident there, Peter Jones. The teams have just left the field here, the trouble, away to our left where there's a packed enclosure of Liverpool supporters. Two and a half minutes after the match started, they really came over the top of the fence. Police are trying desperately hard to hold them back and at the moment it is simple mayhem.
0: The police just said, just go through. You open the gates, just go in. Doesn't police... matter about the tickets. You weren't interested. In. They didn't
1: say who's got tickets and who wasn't. They just opened open the, the gates. gates and let anybody in. We heard the policeman say, we've opened the gate. There's going to be people killed outside. It was just like a mass relief. Little did we know that when we got under the barrier, the sheer way to of supporters that were were trying to get in for kickoff just carried you. I should stress,
3: incidentally, not so much a question of crowd trouble here. It's just that they were packed in too far, too tight. Went over the top. People got frightened. They're then trying to climb up as they are now into the upper tier, which is very, very dangerous indeed. The crush didn't stop. They were screaming for them to rip the fence down or do something. These two people's arms that were on the floor, were just coming up, you know, grasping for life, literally. And uh, you still, you were still being crushed yourself, but you're trying to hold them up. The situation now seems to be becoming a lot more serious. An ambulance has just come into the stadium and it's making its way through a vast crowd of people away to the left. There would seem to be, from where I'm sitting here, dozens of people now lying on the ground and being attended to by police and St. John's Ambulance. Go. Sure. Like the advertisement stamped, you know, we ran it to the back of the goal and he carried the dead bodies out, like, you know, then after I'd done that, I went to the stands and they were saying there was only two dead and that. I, I mean, it was terrible because Sammy and I walked in and they seemed 40 at least dead. I you to stay in the stadium, to remain in the stadium, just for a few minutes until we could get rid of all the injured people. As soon as we got rid of all the injured people safe to the hospitals, We won't be able to do that if you rush out of the ground, we'll let you know and you can leave the stadium in safety. Please, it is a very difficult situation for all concerned. Please don't, Alec. Try and be calm and we're doing our best way. There's a young girl in front of me who was pushed so hard against this bloke in front because she was
2: short. She was suffocating in this bloke's shirt in the back. All I saw of her head was her hair,
3: her nose and her eyes. Away to the left, of the corner flag. I see for the last 10 minutes a nurse as what I think been giving a kiss of life to one uh, one young fan who looks in deep distress. Uh, there must be at least another 20 or 30 lying on the ground calling for it.
0: A- so I'm sorry I had to show in some respects, but I had to somehow bring that event to people's living rooms, their rooms, their offices tonight. And I'm going to talk around my day of that day. And then I'm going to talk around what then led up to the decision that I took, which I've had to live with for the rest of my life. So I was an 18-year-old season ticket holder for Liverpool for many years both home and abroad it was a lovely Saturday morning 15th of April 1989 it was a bright sunny day I remember it clear as day went to the match with my uncle we stopped off for a drink yes we stopped off for a drink and there was a lot of moves, a lot of noise made around fans going for a drink Went to got to the gate in Barpas, I, I think it was. Went to turnstiles and went through uh, Leppin's Lane through Pennsey, and you can see the football pitch in front of you. And I just went to because I could see that pitch. And as I went into the uh, stadium, you know, it started getting busy. And I've been in many many uh, stadiums where it was busy, but somehow this felt different. It felt uncomfortable. And I suddenly started to realise that I needed to get out. There was a, a turnstile, turnstile, there's a barrier in front of me and this almighty crack just snapped in front of me and I realised then I had to somehow fight to fight for my own life. I managed to climb onto somebody and I lived with this for the rest of my life as a father, as a husband, that I had to climb over men, women and children for me to survive that day and I was one of the first people that managed to get over those uh, get over the fence you then going to this mode of trying to do whatever you can and as an 18 year old I don't think I'd ever seen a dead body I don't think I'd ever seen you know an accident or events as obviously there have been events like Hillsborough but people really really suffering I know it's that mode whereby to try and help support people putting on board hoardings and there's a massive gymnasium at the back of the stadium we're taking people back there lining down not knowing if they were alive or dead Unbeknown now of course we all know the people were alive as we were taken back into that gymnasium and then about six o'clock I then thought I need to get home I need to let my parents know that I was alive because they knew that I was at the football team we didn't have mobile phones then so I couldn't get hold of my parents and that's there that I suppose there is where my journey started the Sunday morning I was walking around the garden didn't speak to anybody and I realised then that, you know, well, what, what do I do? I was, you know, many miles away from Liverpool in Halifax, nobody to talk to. And I started thinking, well, I need to speak to somebody, but I didn't know who that person would be. And 1989, we didn't talk about mental health. I was brought up in the family whereby, unless you had a broken arm, broken leg, you went to work, it was okay. Two days later, I went to work on the Tuesday morning was the back of work. People thought they knew what was best for me. I still had my physical health. I didn't have a I wasn't struggling, I suppose, that visibly for people to see. But that's the way, the attitude we were brought up in back in 18, 1989. Of course, mental health was there. Poor mental health was there. But we certainly didn't talk about it in my family or even in society in general. And I suppose I was probably ashamed, I suppose, of what people were saying, what the press was saying, the magnitude of the event. And I got questions from, myself, from other people when I went into workplace. Did you see what, what the writing in the paper I mean? For Christ's sake, you know, no, it did not happen. And I felt very alone. Well, I suppose, no, I'll rephrase that. Sorry, I chose to be alone. I felt comfortable in my own, I suppose, in my own company. But then it went through a period whereby, you know, you start going through your life, the obviously, the inquiries, etc. And I had to somehow... Cop- I suppose put it back in my mind. Would ne- I will never go from my mind, but somehow put it back in my mind and try to somehow get on with my life as difficult as that could be. And I found that I started isolating myself from friends and family. And during a period of time, many years you go through, you get you, know, if you have your children, you get married, et cetera. I started to throw myself into work. And for many, many years, Hillsborough's always got to be there, it always will, will be there. I somehow had to somehow put that to one side. And I started going through a period whereby, you know, work was, I suppose, the be-all and end-all. And didn't, I, I was suffering. Absolutely, I was suffering. And I don't, I suppose, apologise for the fact that I used to fake illnesses, fake illnesses, so I didn't have to socialise socialise with friends or family. And work was becoming my haven. Work was my escapism to get away from the questions I was getting asked at all around, are you okay, Matt? Every time there's a Hillsborough anniversary, I'd always get asked those questions. And it prevented me from moving on. And I became, I suppose, depressed. I, I didn't even know actually what the word depression was, to be quite frank. But I found, I found myself struggling. And then about 2017, my wife was diagnosed with a bone tumour. My dad was diagnosed with cancer. And two years prior to that, my mother died of dementia. Hillsborough Choirs were still ongoing. I thought, oh, shit, you know, I can manage this. I can spin all these many, many different players. And I had two masks of pretense. I had one at home and I had one at work. And suddenly I started to realise that I couldn't start spinning these players. I couldn't start being the husband, the career professional, the father. And I wasn't a nice person to be around, Not, not just within the home place, but even at work. And loneliness started to consume me. But was I going to tell people I needed help? Absolutely not. Why? I'm a man, I'm a career professional, I'm a husband, and this was my problem to sort out. It certainly wasn't my wife's problems, my children's problems or other people's to sort out. It was my problem to sort out. And I was also worried about what would happen within my career as well. Would it inhibit my career as I move forward? So I started to convince myself uh, that I was becoming that burden on everybody around me, but strangely not work and that will become evident in a few moments. And as a 48-year-old, I felt useless, I felt helpless, and I feel as if I had no purpose in life. And I always craved routine, I craved control. But one other thing I also craved, and we talked about at the very beginning of this presentation, that was perfectionism. I was that perfect individual both at home and at work. And we've all seen the last two three years, we do not live in a perfect world anymore, but yet we continue to try to think to be the perfect individual, be it at home or, or within the workplace. And I started feeling worthless, and I started becoming worthless, or I thought at least I was. And I was quickly running out of options of what I could do and what I could put in place. Was it go ask for help? Absolutely, I wasn't. But I was becoming physically, mentally and emotionally exhausted with what would happen with my family, what happened with Hillsborough, still trying to manage a career. I was becoming absolutely exhausted. And one thing with well, one of the biggest causes of poor mental health is poor sleep. I was struggling with my sleep. I would be getting three, four hours of sleep per night. I would be getting, getting up in the morning four-ish and I'd be going to work, <laughs> work at four, you know, 4.30 in the morning. Again, it was my escapism. And then something strange happened one night, and sometimes people think, you know, this is a bit up here, but it is it is absolutely true. I attended my own funeral. I lied in bed, and I walked that walk. I considered all the words that I've talked about, but the burden, useless, worthless. And I felt as if I had no choices, and I craved routine, I craved choices in life. I felt those had all been taken away from me. And I'm the first person to always admit that when I've ever heard somebody's considered taking their own life or then taking their own life, I would sometimes say, how selfish can that person be? What about their family? What about the people that they leave leave behind? But when you're in that moment in your life where you feel you have no choices, you become that burden, it becomes an easy decision to make. So, I looked at what people would say if with at my funeral, looking from the outside in. What would people go say that if I wasn't there? And for the first time ever in many, many years, I felt at peace with myself. I absolutely felt at peace with myself. 30th August, 30th August, 2017, early hours. I got that morning, I got dressed. I got dressed to go take my own life. I knew where I was going to go, because I planned it that, that night before. I knew where I was going to drive and what I was going to do. And people sometimes say to me now, would you have followed through with it? And I'm, ask, I'm a great believe that. When you get asked a question, you might not know the answer, but you can maybe go find the answer. That's one question I can never give the answer to. I was, I was determined I had to take some uh, choices. I had to take back control and routine of my life. My wife woke up and why right to this very day, we'll never know why she woke up, but she woke up and came downstairs and asked me where I was going. And I told her, I can't take this anymore. I need to remove myself from you, from the family, from everybody, because I've become that burden. And I did that morning on the 30th of August 2017, I did the two most important things I will ever, ever do. I took two steps. I said three simple words, I need help. And if we've got people on this call who are parents or guardians of children, you always remember your child's first steps or your child's first words has been probably the most important things as a parent or a guardian. That morning were the most important things I have ever, ever done. But they were not simple. Oh my God, they were not simple. And throughout the court, that, that morning, we sat down, I could put in front of my wife, I told everything that was going on in my own mind, and I admitted that, you know, I really, really needed some of that, that help. I did something called strange that afternoon after I got myself composed and we were were talking to my wife. That afternoon, I went into work. I mean, Christ almighty. A few hours before, I was getting dressed to go out and take my own life. Later on in that afternoon, I got dressed to go into work. And the reason for that is I had to somehow get acceptance that Work was my solace, work was my escapism. I somehow need to get acceptance from my employers, my workplace, that what I was going through was okay. Went to work and I broke down. My manager at the time, she marched me to the doctors, I went to the doctors, and I was then put into crisis care that afternoon, that evening. My wife was told to lock the door, so I couldn't escape, I couldn't get out of the house. And the crisis team came out to see me. And they said to me, you need help. We need to admit you for a day or so. And I would absolutely love to know where was I going to hospital. But I suppose common sense prevailed. As I admit to a mental health hospital, the same mental health hospital I drive past day in, day out. And I've always used to say to myself, P- August 2017, I wonder what type of person goes in there. Psychotic people, nutters, OCD, mad people. Yeah, I've absolutely used those words. And ironically, now, I found myself sat on a bed, mesh on windows, no rails, no mirrors, on a really, really basic, uh, basic ward. Placed on suicide watch, even going to the garden there, I had somebody with me. First few days was hard and I started to think, I can't cope with this. I made a further attempt on my life while seeing that mental health hospital, And then I did the third most important thing I probably have ever done. I started to make choices. I put, hypothetically put my hand out for help, and I made choice two choices. I could either carry on the way that I was going, and that was certainly wouldn't end, end favourably, or I could be accepting of all the help and the support that was available. And for the first time in many, many, many years, I started to be kind to myself. A 48-year-old career professional, a man, a husband, a father, was going to put himself first. I've got to start to be kind to myself. So I went through all the medication with all Inclusive. I had CBT, EMDR, uh, psych- psychiatrist treatment. And I was eventually diagnosed with post-traumatic PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder as result well of Hillsborough because I've not faced into it. I've put it away and obviously what had happened uh, with, with family, etc. But what I found hard was to try and handle the stigma, the shame, the shame that a Robert's family member has now found himself in the Dales Mental Health Hospital. But I had to somehow overcome that stigma, overcome that label for me to move on. And i talk about the brown shoes. When I was in that mental health hospital, my wife threw away all the clothes that I wore that morning, except for the shoes that I wore. Why, we'll never know. And for me, they are the most important personal possession I now have, why? Because there is, I suppose they, they give that sense of the path that I was going to walk that morning, but more importantly, the path that I now walk day in, day day, in, day out, and that's to talk on sessions like this, to try and move the stigma, shame, call it what you want, that comes with mental health and well-being, poor mental health, especially when it comes to males. So then my simple reminder, of, I suppose, who I am now as I go forward. I can't change the past. Of course, I would love to have changed the past to a certain extent. I can't. Hillsborough and what happened with family w- will always be there. I class myself as a look one. 97 people were look lucky. 97 families, friends, associates, work colleagues have lost dear people. So I can't change the past. But what I can do, I suppose, is trying to shape that as I move forward. It's part of my DNA. It's something I have to live with. It's something I have to try somehow to turn into a positive way. I regularly drive past the place where I was going to, going to end it all with, and sometimes my wife might be sat next to me, and I always get this sense of a look in the mind. I know she's dying to say certain things or say something, and there's that trust element that will always be there from the challenges or the personal journey that I went on to. So that's the journey where I ended up with my poor mental health. But what I want to do, and I said it right at the very beginning, this is not just me to give you my personal journey and how it's ended today. What I also want to try and leave you with is something around the support tools, the techniques that I had to put in place, not you know, it was a case of shoulda, shouldn'ta. I had to put in place to get me back onto my road of recovery. And I'm going to demonstrate now however. Poor mental health is not one size fits all. Yes, we have training mag- uh, training booklets. We can go on course. We can get those certificates. But poor mental health is not one size fits all. We cannot write a manual to, you know, around what people should do to support people's wellbeing. It's how we approach. It's how we approach. It's how we create a safe psychological environment that people in football clubs can say, "I'm struggling. I need a bit of help," without the fear of a label. Being stuck to them without the fear of that stigma, that fear of what other people are thinking. i going got show now around what did I put in place to support my way of well-being as I went through that particular journey. But how can we get beyond fine? And I will never ever apologise for the fact that a well-being conversation, embarking on a well-being conversation, discussion, having that conversation with somebody might not be life-changing for a person it can absolutely be life saving for them. And as you know, fellow club members, well, no, actually, as, as human beings, we have a right to be inquisitive. We have a right to care about the people within our clubs or societies, within our organizations. Some people might say to me, well, it's being intrusive, Is being those No, it's not. It's being caring, but how do we care? How can we approach that subject? And there's four key themes I'm going to touch on a few, in a few moments around how we shouldn't struggle in silence. How can we reach out? How can we make those life-changing decisions? And how, if we're somebody is struggling, how can we help them getting beyond that word and find? And all you'll see here today is everything around what I personally went through. But we have to remember, words can feel like labels. Once we start using words like mental, straitjacket, psycho, lunatic, or even OCD, I know we may not see it in with, with harmful intent, but for a person suffering from one of those conditions, it can be absolutely debilitating when we use using, for example, OCD. And yeah, I've said to you before, these are the exact words I used pre-2017. But we have to realise that the detrimental impact it has on that person, it's not just their well-being, but also on their confidence their comes in their personal lives or their professional lives. And we talked around perfectionism, you know even imposter syndrome, that's playing a massive impact on people's well-being. So we have to remember words, as much as they may not be in, intentional what we use or what we say, it can mean so so, so much to a person listening or even a person who just listening on the outside. A well-being conversation though, how can we engage in that conversation? How can we create an environment in a club, a society, an organization, or even in the household. This isn't not just restricted to football clubs or within a company or organisation. This is all about creating that environment within the household as well. And there's four areas that got me through and got me onto that road to recover. And that's around when having that conversation, it's around being empathetic. It's visualising what it would be like to walk in that person's shoes. If we know somebody's struggling, how can we put ourselves in that position Even if it's for 10 seconds, a minute, can we visualize what it is like to walk in that person's uh, shoes? And empathy is not sympathy. Absolutely not. Empathy is not sympathy. Empathy is feeling with that person. It's feeling what they're going through. Just as my line manager went through with me and my family gone through with me, it's absolutely feeling with that individual. And it's using simple words, hey, I'm on your side. And I'm gonna touch on a few moments around the importance of that conversation, how to try find those right words, because I know how difficult it can be to engage in a conversation and sometimes there's that fear of what do I say, how do I even approach that subject, I'm frightened of what they're going to tell me, and find frightened that I'm not equipped to give that person that help and that support. And people sometimes think, I'm, you know, I'm a bit mad when they say, we're having a well-being conversation, but one of the most important things in having a well-being conversation, I know this sounds really the complete opposite. The power of silence. We sometimes feel obliged in those awkward moments of silence that we have to fill it with something because we have to make it, it's, it's, we're, we're listening, we have to fill with the, fill those awkward moments. The power of silence is that that person might want to be listened to, nothing more, nothing less, and it can absolutely be life-saving, but how do we in- approach, how do we engage that environment where they can have that uh, that conversation? Are we truly sensitive though to the person's needs and the individual's needs how can we create that right environment and we have to realize that you know somebody in a club or in a football club or in an organization if they're reaching out to you and doing what i did on that 30th of august 2017 that's two steps three words and they're not simple words trust me i need help Are we creating that right environment that we can then get them that help? Are we even creating that right environment that they're able to do the two steps and say those three words? But when we're listening to their challenges, are we listening without assuming? Because sometimes I think we we have this great gift of, we think we have the answers to everything. And sometimes we'll say things or put things in place because we assume that's what they need. But is that what they really need? And I keep going back to the COVID and pandemic we're in a totally different world to where we were at pre-March 2020. And sometimes we go through life and assume that certain individuals need certain things to help their mental, wealth and well, mental health and well-being. But sometimes we have to do the most powerful thing we can ever do. And it absolutely costs nothing. It's free. That's listen and have a conversation. And don't be afraid of that silence. It can be so, so powerful. I think sometimes we get hung up on... I need to help and support individuals when in they club our society. It's got to take me weeks to get things in place. No, it doesn't. This can take absolutely seconds and minutes. And like I said before, it's not life-changing. For some people, it can absolutely be life-saving. But we have to be genuine. We have to be genuine in the help and support that we're going to give. And an authentic life begins first with getting honest with yourself. And it's showing one's own vulnerability. Started off on this journey, I realised that once I set this train running, there's no stopping. People will know the challenge that I went through personally, in work and outside of work. But sometimes we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to show that vulnerability. We have to suppose, show that authenticity, that it's not out of a textbook what I've gone through. I've not written it. It's where I found myself. And it's sometimes we have to take that interest in people, not just within what they do in their personal lives or their professional lives. Let's create something around them. And I think just seeing the comment there around, you know, this safe space, we should be able to create that safe space home and at work. We need to create the environment where they can find that place to say the most goddamn t- the hardest words ever, you know, I need help. And to say, and to come back to them and say, that's absolutely fine. I'm listening to you. Because for that one minute, I'm going to walk in your shoes. I'm going to feel what it's like, what you're going through. I'm going to show that you generally care. But not to be non-judgmental. No two people, even twins, are biologically not the same. And sometimes what we see on the outside it may not be an accurate reflection of what that person's suffering on the inside. And I think, you know, in football now, we again, we want the best from our players. Absolutely. But at what cost? Are they really struggling inside? Do we know how they're struggling? Is there certain telltale signs? Because we've talked about the conversation. But we can also understand sometimes that we may notice patterns in their, their maybe their physical behaviour, some of their attributes or things that they say or they come out with that. Do you know what? It just doesn't feel right. And sometimes we have to go with our gut instinct. We have to just, if something doesn't feel right, a lot of times it probably isn't right. And sometimes we just have to, being inquisitive. No, it's not being nosy. No, it's not being intrusive. It's showing that you care. It's showing that genuineness. It's showing that sensitivity. It's showing that empathy that as a fellow human being or person within your club, I am going to come and have that conversation. I am going to come and engage with it. I am going to try and get beyond the words. I'm fine. I'm going to ask those very, very open questions because it puts my mind at rest that I've done as much as I can. I can listen to that person and then hopefully help them and get that guidance and that support. But we have to listen differently and we have to we have to act differently. We have to do it without assuming that we know we what we think that person needs as to what they really, really, really need. And the only way we can do go about doing that is conversation. Is listening. It's creating that safe space. It could be within a club. It could be in a society they, where they can go and have that safe conversation in absolute confidence. And I understand, we've talked about it before. What words do we use? How can I find the right words to say? And I've spent time to go through all that, uh, all that today. But it's asking those open questions. It's getting. It's getting, it's getting uncomfortable. So we can then become comfortable that we can enter in that dialogue. And again, it's just trying to create that safe environment. But do we know who our support team is? And this might not be literally a support team. It could be on the periphery, it could be friends, it could be family, it could be people within your club. We all at times need a support team. We all at times need to know the people that we can lean on to, lean on. on. I had to do it on that morning. And I split it down to the four to four individuals, and these are the four people I I use. Maybe not on a regular basis, but I know what to call upon. And I class one person, well, one in group, as my radiator. Who are the people that's got to give me that comfort that I can go sound off, that will boost my confidence. We all want a bit of confidence in our professional lives. We don't want a bit of confidence on the football pitch. Who can I go speak to that will just boost my confidence? Who's not going to be critical of what of, what I'm going through or what I've, what I've been through? <coughs> As we have fear of failure, and we have a fear of you know failure is a bad thing. No, it's not. Failure is a good thing. We learn from our failure. We learn from mistakes, be it on the pitch, off the pitch. We absolutely learn from that. So, who is it that's got to give me that that boost, that energy, that boost that I've, I need at that point in time? Then who might be my role models? Who are the people that I admire? Who are the people that have achieved something who you know I can learn from? The people that I can get good, sound advice from. And again, it can be people in the club, outside of the club. And then it's the people who can help you. Now these people may be internal, external, but these are more around your wider network. Who are the people that I'm not just gonna look at insular around here and now within that space, within that club, within the organization, or even within that family. Who is my wider network who, maybe one day, I, I, I do need that help. I need to put that help up. I need to put that help up without fear of the stigma, the shame, the labels. But People will show they'll be genuine, they'll be empathetic, they'll be sensitive to my need that will give me that help and that guidance. And then I classed my, what I call, I mean, no-nonsense, I call them kicking the ass-pant friends. The people who would tell it as it is, the sharp talking, the direct talking, and we all need that in our in, in, in times, we may not sometimes like it, but the people who will say it as it is, straight as a die, will say it as it is, and we need that, we need that sharp talk, we need some of that sharp guidance. So it's just a case of trying to identify, you know, in the group, who is your support team, do you have a support team, can I put a support team in place that will allow me to create that safe that give me that safe psychological environment that I can do the two most important things I may want to I may want to do one day? That's two steps, but and three simple words, I need that help. But finally, we have to check in with our own well-being. And I mentioned at the very beginning, I didn't check in with my well-being. I had put on the mask of pretense. I chose to ignore the signs, the symptoms. Of what's creeping upon me because of gain the stigma, the shame, etc. But we are no good to anybody. We are no good to anybody. If we don't put that oxygen mask on ourselves first before we want to help and need to give that help to support other individuals. And there's a great video I'm going to show now that is, you know, whenever we get our mobile phones, it always tells us, I think it's about 20%, you need to plug your mobile phone in to charge you up. But how often? Do we plug ourselves in to charge ourselves? But not literally. But how do we look after? How often do we look after our wellbeing? I didn't look after my wellbeing, and that nearly cost it cost me my life. We have to we have to look after our wellbeing. We have to demonstrate that behaviours and behaviour behave behaviour. If we start looking after our wellbeing, other people start doing that. And we've seen that during the pandemic, the importance of looking after our physical, mental, and emotional wellbeing. And this video is just a good summary of some of those uh, instant tips and techniques that I've just talked about. So hopefully this will work.
1: Every day we recharge our phones, but we forget to recharge ourselves. Let's just say we slept well the night before, which means we start our day with a 100% charge. When we wake up in the morning, We roll over and 80% of us check our smartphones before we brush our teeth. We scroll through social media, we browse through emails. That takes away 10% of our energy. Let's say we now have 90% charge left. We then commute to work. We spend our day in the office, in meetings, interacting with colleagues, finishing off projects and assignments. We now have 40% charge left. On the way home, we commute through traffic or on the train, and that takes away another, let's say, 10%. We now have 30% charge left. We come home and switch on Netflix, talk to someone about what our day was like, and sometimes we lose another 10%. We now have 20% charge left. At 20% on our phones, usually the charge bar goes red. We get an alert. We get a message that tells us that we only have 20% battery left. The question is, do we notice when our charge is at 20% or 10%? There are always signs from our bodies, our brains, our minds, but are we tuned in? One of the best things we can do to recharge is to exercise. The hardest part of any workout is actually the 15 minutes leading up to it. We come up with 15 reasons why we don't want to sweat and we change our mind 15 different times. CNN reports that when you work out, your brain creates more serotonin, which sends messages to your nervous system of happiness and well-being. Working out for 30 to 40 minutes every day can recharge our battery by 20% meditation is an incredible way to recharge our batteries exactly what the gym does for the body meditation can do for the mind meditation gives us downtime physically mentally emotionally and spiritually meditation also directly impacts your entire nervous system by reducing your body's productions of stress related chemicals such as cortisol Meditation is a great way to recharge and can take you back up 20%. We've all heard about incredible morning routines, but the one thing that can make a huge difference to your recharge is your evening routine. 35% of us are not getting the recommended 7 hours of sleep per night. Remember, every body and mind is different. Make sure you find the amount of time you need to get that serious battery recharge. And the 75-year study by Harvard found that beyond anything, the real sense check for happiness and meaning in life was relationships, connections, interactions with depth that are fulfilling and full of joy. Making time for deep, meaningful interactions every day can give the recharge our battery seriously needs. What if we've recharged ourselves as much as we recharge our phones. Because if we don't, we'll end up like one of our phones in the bottom of some drawer
0: in our home. I'm seeing the comment around people, like, you know, how can you spot that it's creeping up is that? We need to recharge. Sometimes we don't always need we can spot that, but people around us might be able to spot that. That's why again. Creating a safe cyclical environment. And I'm not saying here we have to be doing loads of meditation or go to gym and be, you know, match, you know, male male athletes and etc. Our bodybuilders, absolutely not. It's just sometimes doing what the most important thing we can do. I didn't do it. And that's be kind to ourselves, just realizing parts of our own mental, physical and emotional wellbeing. So hopefully you found that useful. I apologize for the the technical difficulties we had at the beginning. But again, That's life. We don't live in a perfect world anymore, and obviously that's proved it tonight, but hopefully being able to take away something from this talk over the last uh, 60 minutes or so. But thank you, and thank you, Danny, as well for the invite.